so just important reminder, next Sunday, our services are a different time. They are at 9 and 10. You 9 a.m. people, it's easy for you. It's the 11 a.m. people that have the work to do. Uh, they got to come an hour earlier. Can you believe that? And then we're going to have a very condensed about 30 to 35-minute service, and that will allow us all to have plenty of time to get up to the uh, Oneida Shores for a wonderful afternoon. About 180 of you have already signed up for the church picnic, so there's still spots. Make sure that you sign up and spend that afternoon with us. Well, Friday, um, my wife Erin and I like to try to spend our Fridays together, have like a date day, and we were doing some things around town, and we ended up at Costco's, because for some reason, the spirit always leads us to Costco's, and as I was uh, pulling into Costco's, I looked at the price of gas, and it was four forty-six a gallon, four forty-six a gallon, and I was so happy. And I got in this long line, and I started texting my friends, gas is four forty-six a gallon at Costco's. I was so excited. And then I thought about the fact that I was happy that I was paying $4.46 for a gallon of gas. And then I got so angry. <laughs> I went from happy to angry very fast. What, what makes you angry? <laughs> what makes you angry? And we're in our series on community, and this morning we're going to talk about anger. And the reason why we need to talk about this in a series on community is because anger can be so disruptive and destructive in community, in relationships. But anger is also something we don't always see in ourselves. In fact, some of you, as soon as I said we're going to talk about anger, you thought, I wish so-and-so was here to hear this. Or you thought, I'm glad this person is here with me this morning to hear this. Because it's usually for someone else. Because anger is so sneaky, all you need to know is someone who's angrier than you, and you might convince yourself that anger is actually not a problem. But I think if we're honest, anger is a problem for all of us on some level. And anger is destructive in relationships, but anger is also destructive within our souls and what it does to us. And so this morning, we're going to look at a story from the Old Testament. And most of you probably are familiar with the story of uh, David and Goliath. David's this young shepherd boy, and uh, he goes and he fights this giant Goliath, and he defeats him for the people of Israel. And at that time, there is a king over Israel, and the king's name is Saul. And Saul is still the king in title, and he's still the king in function, but He's actually not the king spiritually anymore. Um, he's sinned against God, and the spirit of God has been kind of taken away from Saul. And here he is still trying to lead Israel, but he's, he's an angry person. What happens is, is that David becomes best friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. And David becomes very popular in the eyes of the people of Israel. And this all happens in chapter 17 and 18. And very soon, Saul realizes that people like David more than they like him. And he gets angry. In fact, in chapter 18, Saul, because the Spirit of God had left Saul, now in that void, these evil spirits were kind of uh, attacking Saul. And Saul would be tormented by evil spirits. Can we turn this down just a little bit? I'm getting a buzz. Tormented by evil spirits. And so David would come and he would play his harp or his instrument and it would bring peace to Saul. And two times in chapter 18, while David is playing for Saul, Saul takes a spear and tries to pin David to the wall. Two times. I'm kind of wondering why David went back the second time, but two times this happens. And then we keep reading in chapter 19, Saul actually arranges a marriage between David and his daughter, but it's a marriage that's set up to actually uh, cause David to die. He gives David this impossible task to accomplish, but David does it because the Spirit of God is on David. Chapter 19, Saul tries to kill David while he's lying in his bed. And so there's this pattern developing. Saul wants to kill David. 
Jonathan is David's best friend, and they come up with this plan. And there's this moon festival dinner that David is supposed to be at. He's always at in the king's palace. And David says to Jonathan, I'm not going to go because I can't trust your dad right now. But let's, let's come up with this plan. And basically the plan was, when your dad asks where I am, tell him that you said to me, I could go home to Bethlehem to have my annual sacrifice with my family. And let's see how he responds to that. Jonathan says, all right, good plan. And so sure enough, the second night of the new moon festival, Saul notices that David isn't there. And he says, where is David, the son of Jesse? And Saul says, oh, I told him he could go back to Bethlehem and sacrifice with his family. Let's pick up the story here, beginning in verse 30 of 1 Samuel chapter 20. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse, this is David, to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. So Saul realizes that David is a threat to the passing on of the crown from, from Saul to Jonathan. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Saul is determined to kill David. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. I would think that they would take the spear away from Saul at some point here. But here's Saul again throwing that spear at Jonathan, the same one that he probably threw at David. So now Jonathan put two and two together, and he realized, my father is determined to put David to death. And Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. So this morning, what we're going to do, we're going to kind of use this story as a, as a launching pad for this talk on anger. And we're going to answer three questions about anger. Number one, what is anger? Number two, where does it come from? And number three, how do we face it? Okay, what is anger? Where does it come from? And how do we face it? What is anger? I mean, you know it when you see it right? You know it when you feel it. What is anger? Probably the best book I've read on anger from a Christian perspective is this book by David Pollison called Good and Angry. And I recommend it for every single person, whether you think anger is an issue for you or not. This is such a powerful book on the topic of anger. And in this book, David gives us this definition of anger. And he says that anger is active displeasure towards something that's important enough to care about. Anger is active displeasure towards something that's important enough to care about. So three things happen. Number one, I identify something that's wrong or perceived to be wrong. Number two, I take a stance of disapproval and I feel displeasure. And then number three, in some way I am moved to action, to say something or to do something, or at the very least to consider saying something or doing something. So a few things in this definition that we need to notice about anger. First thing is this, is that anger is an emotion, it's not an action, Okay? Yes, people act in anger, but anger is not itself an action. Anger is an emotion. Feeling angry and acting angry are not the exact same thing. They are different things. You can feel many things without acting that way. You can feel hungry, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to eat. You can feel tired, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you can go, are going to go to sleep. And you can feel angry and not act angry. Also, another thing is that I appreciate about this, def this definition is that it just says anger is active displeasure. It doesn't define what that displeasure looks like. Anger is, sometimes when we think of angry people, we think of loud people. 
people who yell and scream and punch holes in walls. But anger actually is not about volume. It can be, but it isn't necessarily about volume. And anger is also not about violence. When it comes to anger, there are screamers and there are seethers. <laughs> the screamers, you know that they're angry, but the seethers, they just kind of, it's just under the surface, this anger that somehow they've learned to keep it under the surface. There's exploders and there's imploders. And you probably know which one you tend to be. So anger is not about volume or violence. It's trickier than that. Another thing that we see in this definition is that anger is always connected to a value judgment. In other words, is it important enough to get angry about? When I'm watching sports, more often than not, when my team is losing, I find myself getting angry. Now, my wife, Erin, cannot relate to that. Why? Because it's not important enough to her. She doesn't care about it. It's way too important to me, though. And I find myself getting angry. There are things that you get angry about that other people don't get angry about. And it actually probably makes you angrier. Um, and, and, then there are, and then there are things that other people get angry about that don't bother you. Because there's a value judgment always attached to your anger. Is it worth getting angry about? And how angry is it worth getting angry about? Anger is always directed. It's towards something. There is always an object of your anger. And then the last thing that we have to notice in this definition is that anger, listen, anger itself is not a sin. Anger is not a sin. Psalm 4.3, Ephesians 4.26 basically say the same thing. In your anger, do not sin, which means you can feel anger, you can be angry, but it doesn't mean that you have to sin. If anger itself was a sin, then Jesus sinned because we are familiar with perhaps the story of Jesus getting angry in the temple because of what the religious leaders have done to keep the Gentiles from being able to enter and worship in the court of Gentiles and taking advantage of the Jewish pilgrims. Jesus gets angry enough that he causes a scene. So anger itself is not sin. So what is anger? Anger is active displeasure towards something that's important enough to care about. Second question this morning is, where does our anger come from? And I want to give you three things. And the first thing is this. Our anger comes from unattained goals. Unattained goals. Things that we want or wanted and aren't getting or didn't get. In this story, Saul has a very specific goal at that moon festival meal, he wants to trap David. He knows David always comes to this festival. So I'm going to trap him here, and we're going to kill him, and we're going to end this threat to the throne. But on a bigger picture, Saul's, Saul's unattained goal that he is most afraid of, he says in verse 31, as long as David is alive, you and your kingdom will not be established. He's saying to Jonathan, how stupid are you? Don't you realize that David is going to take from you what is rightfully yours? And Saul has this goal that his family name would live forever upon the throne of Israel, and it's an unattained goal. He realizes on some level it's not going to happen because the kingdom has been torn from him, as the prophet Samuel had told him. You know, we all have unattained goals in life. Here's some things you might say or think. This isn't the life I thought I'd have. This isn't the life I deserve. This isn't the person I married. These kids are not who I raised them to be. This job is not satisfying. This pleasure doesn't last. This experience is overpriced and it under-delivers. This opportunity was fake. It was an illusion. This person is a fraud. This world, this country, this whatever. We all live with the sense of things that we thought would happen 
that haven't happened, unattained goals. And can I just say that this idea of unattained goals is made worse now because of the comparison game that we can play online. You know, we're okay with our house until we see someone else's house. We're okay with our family until we start following somebody else on Instagram and we're like, that's the perfect family. That's the good life. And so we have this comparison game, this sort of you only live once, this fear of missing out thing that's happening that is sort of being exacerbated by social media and the internet. And so we struggle with unattained goals. And when we, when we focus on our unattained goals, we get angry. Unattained goals, by the way, often result from unrealistic expectations. Getting married with the expectation that this person is going to complete you and that this person is going to take away your problems and make your life perfect. That's an unrealistic expectation. But sometimes people bring that into the marriage, then they have an unattained goal. This, this expectation that this next job is going to make you happy and it's going to give you the path that you've so desperately wanted and it's going to satisfy you. Unrealistic expectations often lead to unattained goals. And unattained goals require a scapegoat. And that scapegoat becomes the object of our anger. We can be angry at a person, angry at a circumstance, angry at a system, but this is a source of anger. The second one is <clears throat> unresolved grief. There's a show on Netflix called Chef's Table where they highlight some of the best chefs in the world. And, and of course, you know, if you come to church here, that I love food and I love food shows. Um, but here's my love-hate relationship with food shows. I love them because the food looks amazing and I love learning about food, but I hate them when I know I'm never gonna get there. You know, so like there's episodes where it's like, this is in Madrid or this is in Bangkok. And I almost don't want to watch because I'm like, I'm never going to eat this food. But then when there's an episode that's like in the United States, I'm like, I'm going to watch. And so they're actually, most of the chef's table episodes are great chefs around the world. But there was one in New York in Hudson Valley. His name is Dan Barber. He's a very famous chef. They have a restaurant called Blue Hill Farm down in the Hudson Valley. They're famous for their farm-to-table approach. It's supposed to be one of the best restaurants in the world. I was super excited to go until I looked online at the cost of a full-course meal. Then I felt all my anger again. But... Um, <clears throat> Dan Barber, part of his story is that he lost his mom, I believe, to cancer when he was four years old. And he talks in this episode about how it shaped his life, this grief. And he says, one of the reasons I am a slave to cooking, a slave to cooking, is I'm still trying to fill the void of losing my mom. When someone comes to eat at my table, it's like I'm trying to get my mom back to the table. And then he says, but isn't that life? Isn't life just trying to fill one void after another? Uh, and, and grief creates voids in our hearts. And grief creates voids in our lives. And what do we do with all of that grief? And here's one thing I've learned about grief, and if you know my family, you know we've had some tremendous losses in the last five years, but one of the things that I've learned about grief is it doesn't just go away. I know that you're, some of you are like, no, duh. But that's something I've learned. It doesn't just go away. It will show up in different ways. And if you do not face grief and walk through grief in a healthy way, one of the predominant ways it will show up is anger. And you won't even know why you're so angry. But it's connected to something that you've lost. And as a nation, as a world, we've come through two years of just losing so much. Losing stuff. And often we feel like, well, you know, going through COVID, I don't really know. I, I know one individual who was loosely connected to our church who, who passed away as a result of COVID. But that's it, really. And I know there's people around the, the world who have lost dozens and dozens of friends and family to this. So here's, here's what you start to tell yourself. It, it's, I can't grieve what I've lost the last two years because I haven't lost as much as other people. 
And while there's some wisdom to that perspective, you still do have to grieve what you've lost because you've lost some things these past two years. We all have. Walking through grief and not resolving it is a way that leads to anger. And Saul, at this point in his life, he had so much to grieve. He had lost so much. The kingdom had been torn from him. But he was in no position to actually process his grief in a healthy way. And it was showing up in anger. Grief doesn't go away. It just changes forms. Now, there's, there's, there's different approaches to grief, and I'm not a psychologist, a sociologist. I'm not an expert on this at all other than my own life experience. But I wanted to share with you just four ways that people can resolve grief. And by the way, resolving grief is not the same as eliminating grief. We don't just get rid of it, but there is a way in which we can walk through it in a healthy way. Here's four ways that I think people can resolve their grief. And the first one is conversational. How many of you, you raise your hand and say, I am a verbal processor. Just raise your hand. I talk things through. I drive my spouse nuts because I always want to talk about how I feel and what I think, right? So I'm the same way. I am a verbal processor. I learn things about myself when I'm talking, (laughs) I surprise myself. I always tell my wife, I start sentences and I don't know how they're going to end. And then I learn how they're going to end as I am talking because I'm a verbal processor. And some of you are verbal processors. And for you, you need to talk it out. You need to talk it out. You need to talk more about what you've lost. You need to talk more about maybe it's an individual that you've lost. Maybe it's an opportunity. that You need to talk it out. And by the way, sometimes conversational talking means professional help. Getting, going to a Christian counselor and finding a safe space to talk about those things, conversational. Other people, it's contemplative. Contemplative are those who probably didn't just raise their hands. You are sort of an inward processor. You process thoughts. When you're at a meeting and everybody's spitballing ideas, you're the one who's like, I can't keep up. I need time to think and to write and to process. And so instead of talking it out, you need to think it through. Think it through. And again, a counselor can be very helpful with this. Other people, another way to process grief is through creativity. You need to make something. You need to write a song. You need to write a poem. You need to, you need to paint something. You need to garden. You need to do something, but there's a creative outlet that's going to help you walk through your grief and resolve your grief. And for others, you don't just make something. It's constructive. You do something. I, I know people who, uh, I'm thinking of one mom in particular who lost her daughter to a drunk driver. And so she's given her life to this cause of raising awareness about that. Every year, a fundraiser to make sure that the people who are raising awareness about the dangers of uh, drunk driving have the sources and the resources that they need. And for her, that's part of resolving her grief. She's doing something practical. She's constructive. So four ways, I'm sure that there's more, but four ways that we can walk through our grief, talk it out, think it through, make something, do something. But listen, grief doesn't just go away. It'll turn into something. And if it's not resolved in a healthy way, and the biblical way, by the way, to deal with grief is a word called lament. And lament is a word where we pray our tears and our fears to God. We sing our fears and our tears to God. We don't internalize them. We don't just uh, throw them up all over everyone else around us. We direct them. We bring them to God in deep honesty. It's okay to say, God, you're just, dis- this- oh, say- it's okay to say to God, I'm disappointed with how things have worked out. Where were you in the situation? What are you doing in this moment? It's okay. He already knows what's going on in your heart anyway. But lament is this raw honesty that the world is not the way it should be. My life is not the way I thought it would be. But if we don't lean into this some way, then unresolved grief becomes anger in our lives. And the last one is this, unseen gods, unseen gods. 
Saul was afraid of what people thought his entire life. In fact, the first time that he disobeyed God in a dramatic way, he did not do what God told him to do because he said, the people wanted this instead. And so I did what the people wanted. Saul had this God in his heart, this unseen God, the approval of other people and the respect of other people. In fact, one of the things that set Saul off against David was that the ladies wrote this song that they would sing where they would say, Saul has slain his thousands, pretty impressive, right? But David, his tens of thousands. And Saul heard that song on the radio and he was like, I do not like that song. Because he realized they looked at David as being 10 times greater than Saul. Now, why did that bother him so much? Because he had an unseen God. And his unseen God, this idol in his heart, was this idol of approval and acceptance and power and control and respect. And if you think about the times that you get angriest, there's almost always something that you love too much attached to that moment of anger. Listen, as a dad, if I feel disrespected by my own kids, it pushes a button in me. And the button is, I love being respected. I need to be respected. And in that moment, if I get very angry, it's because in that moment, I'm putting my hope and trust in the feeling of being respected more than I am resting in Christ and what he has done and accomplished for me. I'm looking to respect to do for me what Jesus has already done for me. Maybe respect's not your thing, but maybe control is. Maybe approval is. Maybe acceptance is. Maybe security is. Maybe significance is. But every single one of us has something that controls our hearts or some things. And when these unseen gods go unchecked, that's where the anger comes from. Kathy Keller says, if you pull up your uncontrollable emotions by the roots, you'll find your idols clinging to them. If you pull up your, if you pull up your uncontrollable emotions, visualize this by the roots, you'll find your idols clinging to them. Beneath your moments of explosive anger or implosive anger is an unseen God that you trust and you treasure more than Jesus in that moment. What does this look like? I was thinking of an example from my, my own life. And I remember in a season, you know, five years ago, my family walked through a season of losing my father and losing my brother. And so I thought of this season. And, and one of the things, you know, I had good friends that would say to me, you got to pay close attention to your, yourself. Because this, sort of, this sort of season can really wreak havoc on your soul. And so one of the things that I would notice is that I had very, my fuse got a lot shorter during that year. The margin, the emotional margin I had to deal with stuff was like, can you relate to that? When there's chaos and crisis and, and grief in your life, all of a sudden you can put like, things that used to not trigger you and bother you as much, now they set you off quicker. And I began to realize that, you know, because think of the three things, unattained goals. You know, I had these specific goals that were connected to uh, life with my family. And uh, watching, my, watching the, you know, my, my brother grow up, like an unattained goal, wanting to see what God had for him for the rest of his life. Unresolved grief, lots and lots of grief to process. Two grief journeys at the same time at different places. Very disorienting and destabilizing. And then unseen gods. And one of the things that the Holy Spirit showed me in that season is that one of my idols was control. I love to control things. It, it often influences even the way that I lead. I'm very invested into the quality of what we do as a church. I'm very invested into the ministries that we offer. But that can be on, it, it can create good things, but can also be destroying me at the same time because I need to control it. And when you lose people that you love and life doesn't go the way you want, all of a sudden you realize, I'm not controlling very much at all. 
And the things that I wanted to control, like the health journey of my father or the outcome of my brother's life, I have zero control over. So what do I do? That's, a, that's an idol in my heart. What do I do? I try to feed that idol in every other area of my life, small ones, because I'm desperately trying to feed that and, and, and strengthen myself in that way. So here's how it would show up. I would, I would be... My fuse would be shorter with like my daughters like in the backseat of the car. You know, when you got kids, they're goofing off, they're making noise. Kids just do that. And normally it would just kind of be like, all right, girls, knock it off. Keep it down, quiet. Come on, daddy's trying to drive. Let me focus. But all of a sudden I found myself going from zero to 100 like that. And I realized like because I felt like I had so little control in all these big things, I was trying to control that small environment. And when I couldn't even control the volume in my own car... <laughs> It was too much. Why? Unseen gods. Because I loved control, and I had lost it in so many macro ways. I was trying to hold on to so many micro ways. So you, here's, here's what I'm saying. Pay attention to the moments where you find yourself surprised by your own anger. If, you're, if we're honest, we all surprise ourselves every now and then by how angry we get about things. And then begin to ask the questions, what unattained goals are showing up in that moment? What unresolved grief maybe is contributing to it? And what unseen gods am I worshiping in that moment? So in closing, I'm going to have um, some of the band come up and join me. How do we face our anger? And I want to give credit to Doug Fields who gave me three of these four points in a message that we watched in our marriage mornings in May. But here's four things we do to face our anger. And, and uh, this is not going to fix everything, by the way, but this is just going to give you some language, hopefully, to use. The first thing is this. <clears throat> You have to name it. You have to call it what it is. Remember, anger itself is not a sin. Feeling angry and displeasure towards something that is not right is not a sin. And many times in the Christian circles, we won't even admit that we're angry because we think to say we're angry is a sin. You can feel angry and not act angry. But if you deny your anger, you're giving it power and strength because the only things that have the power to destroy us are the things that we deny and we are dishonest about and we don't bring into the light. So the first thing is we have to be willing to say, I'm angry. This really makes me angry. The situation makes me angry. Where I'm at in life makes me angry. The status of my marriage, the status of my, the life of my kids, my job, the world, whatever it is, we have to name it. And as if we are willing to name it, we can move forward, grow, change if necessary, and love. Remember, as we name it, we're not saying that we are an angry person acting in anger because you can feel something without acting on it, but we're just being honest. Second thing is we delay it. We do this so we don't hurt others and damage relationships. Just because you think something doesn't, this is helpful, just because you think something, you don't, you know, you don't have to say it. <laughs> you don't have to say everything. You don't have to post everything that you think. You don't have to say everything that you think. You are a mature adult human being. You can delay your anger. You can feel anger and then choose to delay it. When you think of the anger that you regret the most, it's the anger that was responsive and quick, right? But if you're willing to wait 24 hours before speaking out of your anger, most likely you're gonna regret what you say in that environment, much less than what you said 24 seconds afterwards. So we delay it. I'm angry, I'm gonna, I'm gonna wait. I'm not gonna call that person up right away. I'm not gonna storm into my boss's office. I'm not gonna get in my kid's face. I'm gonna create a little space and I'm going to delay it. What do we do third? We study it. And studying it means this, we ask hard questions about our anger. And we don't just, here's what we usually do. We just say, what made me angry? 
Well, if you only ask the question, what made me angry? All you are gonna do is point your finger and blame other situations, other circumstances, and other things. You made me angry, that made me angry, the traffic made me angry, the price of gas made me angry. Don't just ask what made me angry, ask this question, why did it make me angry? Why does that make me so angry? What unattained goals, unresolved grief, and unseen gods are contributing to that level of anger? And then the last point is this, we have to not just study it, we have to speak to it. We have to speak to our anger and we have to remind our anger of our God, the goodness of our God, the grace of our God, the greatness of our God, the glory of our God, that whatever that unseen God is that's making us angry, Jesus is better. He's so much more beautiful. He's so much more wonderful. He provides for us what we're desperately looking for everywhere else. And so this is called the four G's. I found this helpful in my own life. You've probably heard me use this before. Four truths to speak to your heart when you feel angry and you're about to act in anger. Number one, God is great. And because God is great and sovereign, I don't have to control everything. So when I don't feel control and I start to feel anger related to my inability to control something, I tell my own heart, God is great. He's sovereign. He's, he's working it out in ways I can't see. I don't have to control. Second, God is glorious. And because the glorious one, the, the glorious, most beautiful one of the universe delights in me and loves me, I don't have to fear what other people think. The glorious one chose me, saved me. And so my fear of what other people will think, which will lead to anger at times, I don't have to feel that way. Second, or th- third, God is gracious. So what does that mean? So you don't have to prove anything. So much of our anger comes from our need to prove things, our inability to prove things, our desire to prove things. But if God's gracious, you don't have to prove it. And then last, he's good. And if he's good, then his joy and his pleasure is what our heart craves most. We name it, we delay it, we study it, understand it, and then we speak to it. And we don't just speak to it in our own strength. Here's, here's on Pentecost Sunday, it would kind of be a mistake for me not to also add this in closing. This is what it means to walk by the Spirit. Holy Spirit, this is a good prayer for us this morning. Holy Spirit, when I feel angry, help me to be honest and name it. Help me to be disciplined and delay it. Help me to be vulnerable and transparent and self-aware and study it. And help me to be like you and speak to it. Let's pray together.